Despite the inclusion of mental health in the Sustainable Development Goals and within the remit of the Convention of the Rights of Persons with a Disability, mental health is a neglected area within both health system responses and disability-inclusive development. This keynote panel at the 2019 Australasian Aid Conference highlighted the need for an increased focus on mental health and psychosocial disability within the disability-inclusive development agenda and provided best practice examples and learnings for development practitioners. Okay, welcome everyone. Thank you so much for coming to our panel today. Um, I am Tess Hall from the Nussel Institute for Global Health in Melbourne. Uh, and I'd like to uh, acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands in which we meet, the Ngunnawal people, and pay our respects to elders past, present, and emerging. So it is my pleasure today to open our panel on mental health and psychosocial disability, neglected in health and neglected in development. First, let's meet our incredible panelists. I've got from this side, I've got Helen Fernandez from Tier Australia, Dr. Bagavi Davar from TCI Asia Pacific, uh, Becca Alchin from Tier Australia and Monash, and uh, Alicia Carroll from CBM Australia. So there are many, many of you here today who know something about mental health and psychosocial disability. But for those of you new to the area, uh, I want to talk to you about what these areas are and why you should care. Let's start with mental health, because this is kind of a more broader um, concept. So mental health is defined by the World Health Organization as not merely the absence of disease, but as a state of well-being in which every individual can thrive and can contribute to their own community. So we talk about mental health on our panel because we want to emphasize these positive aspects of well-being. So on in individual well-being, family well-being, and community functioning. We talk about psychosocial disability, on the other hand, because it's a psych uh, it adopts a rights-based approach, um, which recognises that people are disabled by the interaction of their functioning and an unsupportive physical and social environment. So we take, a, we take this rights-based um, and strength-based approach on our panel because we want to recognise that within enabling environments, people with psychosocial disabilities can thrive. And people with psychosocial disabilities is a really broad, diverse group of identities. So in some settings, um, that will be people identified as people with mental illness. can also be talking about intellectual disabilities, epilepsy, and this is throughout the Asia Pacific. Um, and as a result, the remit for psychosocial disability is often split between ministries of health and ministries of social services. Uh, mental health and psychosocial disability are key in both uh, development and humanitarian settings. Today we're going to focus more on development settings, but we definitely recognise that there's a wealth of um, experience and research and practice done in humanitarian settings. So at the global policy level, we've got mental health and this, um, uh, well-being integrated into the Sustainable Development Goals. So it's in, uh, explicitly in Goal 3, um, but also, of course, interrelated to many of the other goals. And we've also got the United Nations Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, UNCRPD, um, which advocates for the rights to full participation of persons with all disabilities, including psychosocial disability. Uh, and in the Asia-Pacific region, this is implemented through the Asian strategy. So we've got this imperative um, from a both a development perspective through the SDGs and a human rights perspective. Why are these areas neglected? This is a question I would like you to ask yourselves um, as we go through our panel, because we've got 
only 1% of health budgets dedicated to mental health. And until current day, uh, psychosocial disability is not really a focus of disability inclusion within our development space. Um, I'd like to warn you about this next slide I'm about to put up, and I think it really um, underscores this question that we have about why these neglected areas. Through, throughout the world, including in Australia where we meet today, people with psychosocial disability face colossal challenges. Um, people with psychosocial disability face stigmatising attitudes that they're dangerous, unpredictable and um, unintelligent. These attitudes manifest as discriminatory behaviours, social exclusion and sometimes violence. Uh, people with psychosocial disability are, are excluded from education, employment, housing. Uh, and in the humanitarian social structures uh, within many of the countries in the Asia-Pacific in which we work, this means that family play a key role in, in supporting people with psychosocial disability, but equally that families experience some of these negative effects. So there's a well-established bi bi-directional link between uh, poor mental health and poverty, such that uh, families that are affected by psychosocial disability are more likely to be become poor, and people who, uh, who experience poverty are more likely to experience uh, mental health issues. Um, and we also have, in many countries in the um, Asia-Pacific, there's a functional lack of mental health services, which, as we'll talk about later, is not the full answer to this, um, this challenge, but is an important part of the puzzle. So this is the confronting uh, and unacceptable situation of uh, people with psychosocial disability throughout the world and in the Asia-Pacific. But there is a lot of work that development practitioners from all centres can do. And today, we are going to present you with some best practice uh, examples that cross uh, uh, cultural, linguistic and cultural settings um, and that have made a positive change at the community level, service level and systems level. So today, our lovely panellists will talk to you about social inclusion and exclusion, um, program responses and policy and advocacy responses to improving the lives of people with psychosocial disability. So, without further ado, I'd like to introduce you to Helen Fernandez from Tier Australia. Thanks, Tess, for the welcome, and welcome again to everyone. It's great to um, see some interest in this topic. <laughs> we knew that we had um, fierce competition with the other two keynote panels, so <laughs> thank you for going. Um, I'd just like to acknowledge that the research that I'll present is actually the collective efforts of a big group of contributors, um, and I have the honour to present it today, um, especially to Australia's partners, Centre for Mental Health and Counselling in Nepal, um, the International Assistance Mission, that's IAM in Afghanistan, and Emanuel Hospital Association in India. And we also had academic support from um, NOSL Institute for Global Health, and it's great to see some representatives from NOSL today as well. Um, so TEA's been partnering with these three organisations who are doing community-based um, mental health programming in Afghanistan, India and Nepal for quite some years. And a few years ago we collectively sort of came to a realisation through a lot of dialogue that we'd made a lot of assumptions about um, the lived experience of people with psychosocial disability that were part of those programs. We'd made lots of assumptions about what their needs and priorities were. And we thought, why don't we actually just listen, you know, like the first principle of good development, hey? Um, but sometimes I think in, in health programs we can override that. Um, 
So we also realised that there was a, a real lack of any research on what it was like to live with a psychosocial disability in a low or middle income country. So there's starting to be a lot more um, evidence and research, published research on um, in from high income countries, but definitely not very much from low income countries. And that's a real gap for governments, development actors, and just really um, yeah, participatory and um, inclusive program design. So we used what's called PhotoVoice. It's a participatory action research methodology. Um, and in this research, um, participants were given a camera and they were asked to take pictures of things that contribute to their inclusion in community or, pe or things that hinder them from feeling included in the community. So these were people with psychosocial disability who identified as that, um, but we also had people um, who were carers and, and part of a household of people with psychosocial disability. Um, all participants were from rural communities in India and Nepal. Um, because of security reasons, we couldn't use photos in Afghanistan. But um, in a separate study, um, our partner there used semi-structured interviews. And Becca will touch on some of their findings later. So um, the most significant um, barriers to inclusion, and I just should say that people identified their own barriers and enablers, and these were ranked according to the most significant, what participants felt were the most significant. So it was really, they were shaping <laughs> the, the themes that came out of it. So this is really directly their, their lived experience. Um, so stigma, social distance, economic factors, and difficulty accessing appropriate um, treatment and services. So perhaps unsurprisingly, and as Tess mentioned earlier, um, the most significant barrier was stigma. Um, and stigma was felt from really everywhere. People talked about stigma from within their household, from friends, from the wider community, um, and often this was judgment, um, criticism, and people said they felt very isolated from this. Um, it was also associated with what participants named negative cultural beliefs, so they were, they were identifying things in their own cultures that they thought were negative for their experience of psychosocial disability. Um, and as Tess also talked about, people were concerned about how their mental health or their psychosocial disability impacted on the whole household and how the whole household subsequently had, were facing stigma or barriers to participation and inclusion. Um, this, the second most significant barrier was um, economic factors, and I think Tess also um, touched on this. So the cost of seeking treatment and appropriate services was huge. Um, people sold assets, took loans, and really travelled very far and wide and saw many, many health professionals before they felt comfortable with the service they were providing. So just the cost of health seeking. Um, in addition to that, financial burdens because people felt that they were excluded from economic opportunities, um, employment, livelihoods, being part of self-help groups. Um, the last most significant um, barrier was difficulty accessing appropriate treatment and services. But really, I think we learned that access is more than just their, not, their presence is not there. <laughs> Actually, access was about having family support to attend a, a service. Um, also, people talked about just really practical things like bad roads and no transport. <laughs> so they, they might have found a service, but 
they couldn't afford to get there because of infrastructure, um, and lack of knowledge about service, service options available. Um, what was quite wonderful was that participants said, oh, it's so much easier to talk about enablers, the things that actually help us to feel included. And um, I thought that was really a great thing. Um, and support from family and friends, um, natural supports, which we defined as nature, religion, safe spaces, um, engagement in meaningful activity, um, and advocates and community groups were all identified as enablers to inclusion. So support from family and, and friends, um, the support was both practical and emotional. So people talked about being listened to, being cared for, um, being supported. And then practical help was things like house building, having financial assistance, help with household tasks, just really you know obvious things, but things that sometimes we miss. Um, natural supports. Um, so I mentioned this was nature, religion and safe spaces. Um, so participants talked about just that feeling of peace or happiness um, when they were either participating in really valued religious rituals or they were out in nature or they were in what they thought was a safe space. Um, and that, that just made them feel more confident to pursue opportunities for inclusion. So just the importance of the, the things that I think build them up so social and emotional well-being, which we all know personally for our, ourselves too, but they were really important um, enabling to inclusion. Um, engagement in meaningful activity, and this thrills me because I'm an occupational therapist by background and we talk a lot about um, being engaged in meaningful activity is really important for health. So um, this included things, um, parenting, caring roles, livelihood um, tasks, and participation in community um, uh, events. Um, but also it was linked to economic um, outcomes. So um, people talked about businesses and um, having savings opportunities to have to do savings as well in a network of people. Uh, the final um, enabler was really the presence of community-based groups or um, advocates um, and really participants talked about um, the importance of those people for understanding local um, ways of understanding psychosocial disability and health um, and promoting awareness, not just biomedically but in a more um, rights-based way um, and supporting the whole, the whole family. And I think some of these quotes... Um, really pick up on that really well. Um, groups such as women's groups, support groups, disabled persons organisations were all mentioned as being great for networking and feeling that people had support and a place for a collective voice. So I guess what did we learn from this? Um, we all learned, I think, our partners are saying, well, it's really affirming to have an integrated approach <laughs> and we really need to think about this in an integrated way and I, and I think it really affirmed their, um, their programs already but I think some other things that were really highlighted to us was strengthening family-centred approaches that really stigma affects the whole household and so it's really important to think um, about working with the whole family. Um, that economic piece, um, so building linkages um, and opportunities to self-help groups and business, uh, small business training. 
um, creating stronger um, community-based platforms for collective voice, so whether that is support groups or women's groups or, or DPOs, um, and really the importance of addressing stigma. Um, and this is beyond just raising awareness about mental health or improving access to services, but really through contextually understanding um, how a culture understands psychosocial disability um, and how to strengthen inclusion in a locally contextual way. Um, so, yeah, they're sort of summed up in those um, four lovely pictures. Um, and now I'm going to hand over to Bagavi, who is going to continue and just build on some of those things. Thank you. Um, my name is Bhargavi, and uh, I am a person with a psychosocial disability. Um, within the frame of the Convention on Rights of Persons with Disabilities, I may be called an expert by experience. Um, due to intensive exposure to the colonial-type mental institutions uh, which, which dot India, Indian landscape, um, I've lived with 40 years of trauma and depression um, and slowly taking my time to pass through several gates of services to then recover by my chosen ways uh, of uh, spiritual healing, nutrition, fitness activities, support groups, socialization, friendships, and so on. Um, lovely to hear from Helen about voices very similar to mine coming from the field um, in Nepal and India. Um, and uh, I am, based on my personal experiences and also the experiences of peers from uh, India and the Asia-Pacific region, uh, we created what is called TCI Asia-Pacific. That's Transforming Communities for Inclusion of Persons with Psychosocial Disabilities Asia-Pacific. Um, it's quite a mouthful, and we just say TCI-AP. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, TC Asia Pacific is an independent regional DPO of persons with psychosocial disabilities from 21 countries and growing. Um, the focus for us is on realizing the human rights to living independently and being fully included in communities. This is referred to, we focus on Article 19 of the Convention. Article 19 gives us the, uh, you know, many people, many citizens of countries and many people with disabilities within different countries ask for many kinds of things, um, but what I've heard consistently across the Asia-Pacific region is, we want freedoms, let us out of these institutions, don't force medication on us. So we're really asking, the basic baseline that we're asking for is give us a life, not just treatment, and a treatment which leads us to be excluded. So this is the baseline of our advocacy. We're really asking for right to be included in communities, um, and to be able to make our own decisions uh, on equal basis as others. Um, I'm going to talk a bit about, uh, uh, if you take all that Helen has said, you know, from coming from communities and various voices um, in the Asian uh, subcontinent, um, what would a program look like if you take this and you take that, you take nature and safe spaces and, you know, various other things, uh, and and, and just uh, apply principles of program development to that. What would a program look like? Um, so I'm going to talk a bit about program elements, um, not so much about policy or aid. Um, so uh, there are two gateways. OK. Yeah, OK. 
Um, I'm going through this one, this slide, um, where uh, we see in TCI Asia Pacific, we see the inclusion of persons with psychosocial disabilities uh, to be embedded within the development initiators. Oftentimes you hear of mental health as being a public health issue that is very limiting. We see it within the broader public health gives you, again, treatment. Development gives you life. And so want to shift, the, it's a paradigm shift that we talk about when we talk about CRPD. So move it properly into the development framework and see us from there. Um, um, and inclusion is not just a core value. Many of us who are in program development or policy framing, we think that we are doing inclusion and we offer a certain range of services. Uh, it, it, it should not be just a core value. Uh, the CRPD has like 32 articles and you put elements of each of them that cooks you know, inclusion. So all those articles are important. Oftentimes, the mental health system focuses only on Article 25, that is health. But there are 24 articles before and some seven, eight articles after in the Convention on Rights of Persons with Disabilities. All of them combine to give you um, the realization of the right to live independently in communities and inclusion. Um, so we need program designs which have the outcome of not just symptom reduction or management of symptoms or you know treatment or even cure, but we need program designs which have the outcome of inclusion, which means that any such program design would not just look at a mental health intervention, but it would have all those other elements as well. Um, the challenge is, of course, how can one organization or one clinical professional do this? Of course, it's a role for partnerships. Um, we'll come to that in a bit. The social paradigm of CRPD compels understanding psychosocial and inclusion needs from a social community and population perspective. We must consider the impact of urban amenities, migration patterns, poverty, other socioeconomic factors, individual directed and group directed violence, local features of social capital and support systems, food and nutrition patterns, cultural practices, and coping mechanisms on mental health and psychosocial well-being. Um, inclusion is a lot about partnerships within development and cooperations at small and big levels to develop locally relevant community-based mental health inclusion programs. Um, so uh, we have a program called the Seher program in Pune city. It was born out of my own personal aspiration to have something other than the traditional forms of mental health treatment. Um, and so we created this in the year 2004. Um, and it has two phases. One is the pre-CRPD phase, which ended up being just treatment methods, uh, but happening at the community level. And then we have the post-CRPD phase, where we try to uh, create a program which is compliant with CRPD uh, principles and the human rights uh, practices embedded there. Um, and we must also not forget the SDGs. If CRPD gives us the frame of principles, the SDGs give us the ways to practice it. You know, so all those goals of, you know, even if climate change seems very remote from mental health, but in the last panel here, we just talked about climate change affecting <coughs> groups and individuals, leading to conflict and therefore affecting mental health. So even something as remote as climate change is very much part of psychosocial health um, and well-being. And so here, SEHER program is based on this, uh, you know, this particular um, 
slide which uh, makes us think that there are two ways, there are two gateways to entering the domain of inclusion. One is the traditional domain of mental health service provision, which eventually results in stigma, exclusion, institutionalization, long-term denial of almost all, all human rights, especially in post-colonial nations like India and in the Commonwealth countries. Um, the other gateway is the development gateway. And this allowed us to ask us questions like, okay, if somebody has a psychosocial issue because they don't have a job, or they have just lost someone close to them, then is it better that we just give them a job and see then what happens? Is it better that if their house is crumbling, they have no food to eat, you give them food, or you give them you know, things by which they can uh, refurbish their house, will that make them feel better? So that's the other gateway, you know. In development, uh, you know, as in all our needs, we have like food, especially in local low-income communities, is a big need. So nutrition services, uh, addressing malnutrition issues, uh, addressing anemia, anemia, which is very widely uh, prevalent in, you know, especially among girls. Um, so we we started from that end, not from this end, and it's working well. We created new measurements, we created new tools of assessment. Um, and so it's working well for us that, and, and that's where this is so important that if you need to address, you know, somebody loses a job, somebody loses a daughter, son, husband, somebody has seen a fire burning and they've seen people burn in the fire in their local hazardous environment. Uh, somebody has, you know, uh, moved from one place to another uh, and all of that. So there are, there are, there are a diversity of psychosocial needs. And how do you address that? So again, for us, CRPD and the SDGs together gave us a matrix of field actions, which you can map out. Okay, this is the need and this is how we address it. Um, and so uh, we use a lot of, uh, um, lot of uh, frames for in our assessment, which is not just depression, schizophrenia, all of that, but it's a whole range of psychosocial needs. We work with uh, a, a tool called the mental health spectrum, where we start with, and we have done extensive uh, studies in the community to say how people express themselves. Um, and we have, and we have uh, uh, you know, uh, ways of uh, catching those expressions and dealing with them at that level, at the way they have expressed. And also we have a language of asking, okay, what do you need? What do you need? You know, some people will say, there are even people who say we need medication. Some people say, okay, I'll come to the support group. Some people will say, no, just give me house and I'll be fine with that. Uh, some, some people will say, I don't have food, you know, or give me a part-time job, I can work two hours. And so we have an assessment uh, toolkit which can catch those things. Uh, and uh, so this is what uh, you know. This slide says that if you have the CRPD and then you have the SDGs, and about a thousand field actions, then you're done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and this is a picture from um, my field areas. And really, it's not thousand field actions. We've kind of <coughs> put them in composite boxes. So we have what we call the eight-point framework. Uh, which is the coming together of social determinants and you know individual family community factors, and this is a very elaborate tool system we have created. It'll take to run this through you. It'll take me like three days. <laughs> yeah, but it definitely has super emphasis on nutrition, on self care, on social justice issues, community arbitration, setting up community systems for 
you know, uh, uh, distribution of justice, uh, work a lot on family empowerment, we build support groups, uh, we offer into intensive individual support through arts-based expression wherever needed. Uh, we provide not just psychiatric care, but comprehensive health care using the public health system. And then we work a lot on making social connections, informal and formal, for people so that they can draw from human, human capital, you know, in terms of keeping themselves with, when they are really in crisis or we have many such systems of uh, connecting people so that when they have a need, then they can draw from those kinds of resources. Um, this is broadly the program, and I feel that for inclusion to happen, any mental health program needs to have at least three elements. One is extensive peer support, uh, some forms of group interventions, and some forms and group interventions mainly to build up social capital for people and families. And the last one is humane crisis support, not crisis intervention. Uh, you know, there's a really distinct difference between the two. Um, and so we've built on these three elements and strengthened them as we find, you know, um, that we're falling short of the outcome of inclusion. Um, yeah, this is just to tell you we have about 120 partners <laughs> in local area. Okay, somebody to give food, somebody to give TB medicines and TB treatment, TB nutrition, you know, somebody to do sanitation work, somebody to supply water. You know, we have like 120 partners for our program. Our program is scalable, even though it sounds so abstract. We are working now with 800,000 people across about 30 slums in Pune City, eminently scalable. So we offer this as a good practice example on inclusion of persons with psychosocial disabilities. Thank you. So building on um, these two um, pre previous presentations, uh, I'm talking, going to focus particularly on the fact that uh, the mental health work that you can do outside of health. <clears throat> um, mental health is foundational for community functioning and for individual wellbeing. And, um, and social, the social model of health, as highlighted by, by Giva, that they, uh, really acknowledges the complexities that surround mental health. My contact with mental health work, both here in Australia and also internationally, highlights how mental health intersects with all of those things. It's very intersectory um, and it, those things all disrupt, the, um, negatively disrupt the individual and the community mental health. The lived experiences highlighted in the previous presentations really give voice to how mental health is woven through uh, the experience of an individual's life. Um, and as a result, it's not surprising that um, strategies to promote mental health and well-being can um, are found outside specific mental health goals and um, and seen in many community development and, and resilient building activities. <clears throat> One such a focus um, is the work of e um, economic uh, improvement, as um, highlighted in previous uh, presentations as well. There is a well-established link between poverty and poor mental health, uh, with poverty being both a cause and a consequence of poor mental health. Stress, the, the, the stress of living in conditions of deprivation, increased risk, um, of trauma, social uh, exclusion, 
lack of food security, all put people at increased risk of their own uh, mental health issues. As well as that, having a mental illness uh, results in increased health spending, as Helen indicated, uh, a loss of days employed leading to a, a loss of income, exposure to marginalisation and stigma, thus exacerbating poverty and vulnerability. Poverty and inequality really undermine the self-determination and community cohesion, which are conditions that strongly contribute to poor mental health. Addressing multidimensional poverty and social inequality as part of community development, therefore, um, contribute to prevention of mental ill health and support the recovery and inclusion of people with psychosocial disabilities. Psychosocial disability can also disrupt a person's employment and their livelihood at times that requires them to restart uh, uh, employment that they've previously had, or sometimes it means that they have to start in a new field. So targeting people with, uh, with psychosocial disabilities as well as their families for livelihood programs that you might already be running through development projects can really help to alleviate the disruption and support inclusion. Many people with psychosocial disabilities and their families are also not aware of or sometimes are even excluded from existing disability benefits. Um, so working to link people and their families into opportunities that are already there or potentially advocating for their access to be able to access um, uh, benefits can demonstrate the contextual understanding of the role of poverty and exclusion and poor mental health. Gender is another area um, where this is a focus as well. The impact of living in a world where being a woman is a disadvantage can really pre uh, precipitate or complicate mental health issues. Incorporating a mental health lens into development programs that focus on gender um, discrimination and inequality will help to achieve development goals. In Afghanistan, women's movement outside the home is quite restricted so that women without a supportive male relative can often not access um, treatment and services and support. Uh, a participant from the study and the lived experience in I that IAM did in Afghanistan um, noted that since I have this problem, my husband never took me to a health facility to treat me. Highlighting that access, uh, addressing access to services requires more than just focusing on service delivery, but also addressing community attitudes and gender-based discrimination. The high rate of violence experienced by women brings mental health complications, not only for the woman herself, but also for her children, and that can have very long-lasting um, impact on the, the family as a whole. The lived experience of women in the study in Afghanistan captured violence as a barrier to inclusion and also to recovery. And the, the uh, quote on the slide highlights that. The reciprocal relationship between violence and mental health issues means that women are more likely to experience mental health as a mental ill health, sorry, as a consequence of violence, while at the same time women with um, mental health issues 
are more likely to be the victims of um, gender-based violence. Work in development that focuses on gender inequalities such as uh, women empowerment, women in leadership, skill building, women's health, including reproductive health, will be strengthened by integrating mental health as gender intersects with mental health on multiple levels. <coughs> Another area of focus is that of community development. Family relationships are a core building block for, family, for community functioning. Families at risk of heightened stress due to their circumstances can be targeted for tailored support as a preventative health measure. <clears throat> An example of this is the work of CMC in Nepal, who, um, as mentioned by Helen, who do some work with families in regions where <coughs> labour migration is common. Through education and awareness programs, Families are helped to anticipate the social and, and psychological challenges that they might face through their long absences, the poor communication, in order to help them make decisions around the labour migration and to build greater resilience in families and to prevent mental health issues. Misunderstanding about mental health puts families also at greater risk of um, mental health issues. In the lived experiences studies in both um, in all three countries, Afghanistan, India, and Nepal, family members identified how psychosocial disability impacted on the whole extended family, resulting in a social disconnection for them from the community. So, community education can help to decrease that stigma that the families then experience that is very isolating, and a family member. From India ex expressed this in a statement there, that earlier there was stigma and people don't want to associate with us as mental health is caused by a curse. But now people know that it's a disease. <laughs> as well as that, um, there is also much research around the fact that family members themselves are at a much greater risk of mental distress due to the increased financial burden, the pressure of caring for someone, the lack of understanding about, uh, about mental health issues and stigma so associated with psychosocial disability. So that holistic family approaches that help to build a family's understanding about what's happening can assist them to help do the problem solving to decrease some of that family tension. The organisations in India, Nepal and Afghanistan all gave examples of that. EHAs do some work with peer educators who spend time with families to help provide them with information and support. CMC have self-help groups that connect people together locally. And they also have advocacy groups that help to mobilise people to advocate for resources and support. And IAM have some family groups, support groups, that create opportunities for families to connect together to, to share their challenges and ideas. Each of these build greater family resilience, which support family community development. <coughs> Strengthening family relationships is particularly important for enhancing child, children's wellbeing. Child development happens in the everyday interactions in families. In most lower middle income countries, collective intergenerational parenting is common. And these people are the key people in a child's life. 
While all families experience adversity, families in these settings that have those compounding factors that we talked about before can stress those everyday interactions, making those difficult for child development. So helping to address those compounding factors it promotes child wellbeing. Alongside that, working on those compounding factors, um, the work in Nepal and Afghanistan have also identified a need to target um, the everyday interactions between adults and children. A recent study in C that CMC undertook uh, indicated that there was no such parenting practices of giving time to listen to a child's voice and feelings. Rather, they perceived that it was only their duty to feed, provide stationery and clothing and pay the tuition fee. A positive parenting program in IAM, run by IAM in Afghanistan, is working to address the link between child violence um, and, or violence in childhood and uh, later mental health issues. It works with parents, teachers and community leaders to raise awareness around non-violent teaching and parenting techniques to create change in the way that adults interact with children. They highlight that many parents themselves experienced um, violence in their own childhood and feel under-resourced to be able to um, parent in, in other ways. The, the project has been helping adults to see the world through the child's perspective as they train through train in non-violent and teaching, um, <coughs> teaching and parenting techniques. All of this work is supported through media campaigns to build community awareness. Um, and this is an example of that of, from IAM's work in Afghanistan on the impact of violence against, uh, on child wellbeing. Both CMC and the work of IAM in Afghanistan partner with government, people with psychosocial disabilities and their families and other agencies to advocate for policy change that promote mental health and wellbeing, such as non-violent policies for schools and communities. All of these examples highlight the important work outside specific mental health programs to address the mental health needs within communities and enable, um, and through that, enable mental health and wellbeing promotion. So adding to the previous implications, uh, highlighting that the important to link to other sectors um, that mental health can be linked within all those sectors to really enhance those sectors' wellbeing. Thank you, Becca. Sorry. <laughs> that's okay. Um, Alicia, sorry. Yes, um, yes my name is Alicia. I'm from CBM um, Australia. Um, and I'm going to be talking a little bit more about disabled people's organisations and people with psychosocial disability within that. So CBM Australia has been working with disabled people's organisations for many years to support inclusion. Um, and in many contexts, DPOs provide a platform for individual and collective voices of people with disabilities to represent the views and interests of their members. And as well as partnering with development organisations to support the inclusion of people with psychosocial disability in development efforts. This does not mean, however, that working with DPOs guarantees that people with psychosocial disability are represented or their views heard. Too often we find that they remain marginalised within the disability movement. 
with her perspectives not heard by DPOs, the broader community, and in turn, development organisations. Often this is unintentional, and sometimes due to persistent prejudice and exclusion. But nonetheless, more needs to be done to intentionally promote the inclusion of people with psychosocial disability. And this is why CBM Australia and through the CBM NOSL partnership with DFAT, we've been intentionally collaborating with Transforming Communities for Inclusion Asia Pacific throughout their emergence and development as a regional DPO for people with psychosocial disability. This relationship has really deepened our understanding of the unique barriers experienced by people with psychosocial disability in our region and what is required of development actors to ensure that we no longer continue to leave people with psychosocial disability behind in development efforts. So I'm going to touch on a few of the recommendations uh, based on this work over time. One of the first challenges we need to address is our ignorance and misunderstanding of psychosocial disability. We need dedicated training led by people with psychosocial disability themselves. It's needed to help us in the communities we work with to understand and negotiate the relationships between mental health and disability within a human rights framework. In many contexts, the understanding of psychosocial disability continues to be viewed solely as a biomedical health, a biomedical or health issue or in some contexts, as a curse, something to be fixed, or sometimes shunned or shackled away from the community. Far less consideration has been given to a human rights perspective and addressing the barriers experienced by people with psychosocial disability, barriers that cross all life domains, leaving pervasive exclusion from communities. Misperceptions of the capacities of people with psychosocial disability and a tendency to see their concerns owned by mental health services and charities <coughs> means they are rarely consulted or included in governance mechanisms. CBM has been on this journey and some of these quotes are drawn from our partner programs who are starting to think about disability differently to broaden their livelihood programs to include people with psychosocial disability and recognising that it takes an internal change within organisations to address the prejudice that lies there and the misunderstanding about disability. As Begavi was mentioning, there is a groundswell developing of people with psychosocial disability and their allies in the Asia-Pacific region. Using the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities as a tool for change and through South to South connections, they're advocating equal participation on civil society and community life. This needs to be supported and tapped into by the development community. I encourage you to read the resolution on the mental health and human rights from the United Nations Human Rights Council. It demonstrates consensus and highlights the urgency. The time is now for development actors to be intentional in building their work with and to inform strategies for increasing engagement and inclusion of people with psychosocial disabilities. Donors, researchers and program implementers have an opportunity as we seek to engage with disabled people's organisations more and through our current partnerships. We have an opportunity to support them across disability organisations to understand psychosocial disability better. We can do this through training. We can support them with carrying out situational analyses to give them the tools for understanding what the barriers might be for people with psychosocial disability in their communities. 
and we can also help provide linkages between organisations in the region. We can also recognise that groups of people with psychosocial disability may be at a much earlier stage of development compared to other DPOs. This may mean a need to collaborate with less official representative networks and self-help groups, which will also help in the end to support emerging coalitions and civil society. <coughs> Oops, my slide behind. <laughs> we can support opportunities for newly forming DPOs to gather, dialogue, share and build a joint vision for advocacy, provide facilitation for the DPOs to engage better with the cross-disability movement and to move into the centre of that movement. Acknowledging we're all continually learning. We need to adopt a two-way capacity building approach, which may include supporting emerging or established groups of people with psychosocial disability with organisational capacity, while they help us to better understand the experiences and priorities of people with psychosocial disability in the context we work in. All of us have a responsibility to challenge negative attitudes and the ignorance by identifying and sharing positive images and narratives and highlighting the capacities and contributions of people with psychosocial disability. DPO engagement, however, is only one element of inclusion. And mobilisation of people with psychosocial disability for advocacy requires actions, many, many actions, and one of these is harmonisation of national laws with the CRPD. Our analysis of state reports to the CRPD show that governments continue to have very poor understanding of the rights of people with psychosocial disability, despite um, advances in other disability areas. And this is particularly in relation to equal recognition before the law. The CRPD committee has clearly confirmed that a person's status as a person with disability must never be grounds for denying legal capacity or any of the rights provided under Article 12 of the CRPD. And yet people with psychosocial disability continue to be denied these rights in most contexts. Programs focusing on the justice system and legislative harmonisation have an opportunity to make a significant difference and impact on the lives of people with psychosocial disability by addressing barriers to the right to live in communities, to form groups, to hold contracts, to be able to vote and participate in political processes, to have a family and the right to consent to treatment within health services. It's little wonder that people with psychosocial disability may be less likely to identify themselves and raise their voices in the context of such ongoing threats to their freedom. Health sector specialists also have an important role in creating an enabling environment for this change. By developing supports for people with psychosocial disability within the health system to make decisions about their care, they should provide particular attention to the impact of mental health laws, as they do include provisions which contravene the CRPD. Much of the abuses experienced by people with psychosocial disabilities have been in mental health facilities and prisons, as well as in communities. And this is despite growing evidence of non-coercive approaches in mental health being available. <coughs> we know that the compounding disadvantage of people with psychosocial disability, particularly for women and girls, reduces their availability <coughs> for champions to be, sorry, for champions for advocacy and participation in governance mechanisms. 
Evidence shows that people with psychosocial disability are amongst the poorest and the most excluded from economic participation. And women and girls subjected to greater violence and abuse than their peers with and without disabilities. Ensuring that economic empowerment programs and education programs have an intentional focus on including people with psychosocial disability, including addressing harmful attitudes of staff and employers, is integral to them having the resources to participate in civil society activities. So while the broader disability movement has seen a significant shift from a narrow scope on health and rehabilitation to advocating for models of community-based inclusive development, or CBID for short, CBID is a multi-stakeholder engagement and empowerment approach. It creates systemic change by working with communities, individuals, families and organisations to create a collective movement. But people with psychosocial disability have rarely been included in these CBID programs. These models offer important opportunities for transforming their lives. My colleagues on this panel have discussed the features of CRPD-compliant community mental health programming. And building the capacity of stakeholders and ensuring meaningful participation of people with psychosocial disability from the start when developing programs will provide a foundation from which to build effective and respectful services and supports. A focus is needed on collecting good practices in community mental health with a Global South perspective. And this should be combined with support to DPOs to form alliances with research organisations, <coughs> to participate in academic and practice exchanges, and to engage technical support as they need. This is actually a picture of Transforming Communities for Inclusion Asia-Pacific Asia representative, providing training to stakeholders, including mental health service providers and the cross-disability DPO in Timor-Leste. This was through the Australian Government Supported Partnership for Human Development Program. It's just the beginning of starting a bridge in relationships, but out of this event, a group of people with psychosocial disability formed a DPO for the first time at Timor-Leste. The program will seek to further support them in the future. Finally, through DPOs working with program partners to test and demonstrate CRPD-compliant programs and service delivery models, they can generate evidence and are better equipped to inform policy and use these in their advocacy efforts. So building on the previous panellists, um, the implications are that in order to enable people with psychosocial disability to advocate for their rights and needs, a number of things need to happen, including addressing our own understanding, the understanding of the communities we live in, including the disability movement. We also need to think about community-based mental health care and the way that that's delivered in a way that includes people with psychosocial disability in its formation. <laughs> and I'll stop there. No. No? Um, so just to sum up, I guess I'll call to all of you sitting there being like, wow, lots of information, what can I do? Is um, to uphold the commitments that we have to the Sustainable Development Goals and CRPD, which we've spoken a lot about for a reason. These are uh, political instruments that need to be upheld. Um, we uh, call to foreground the voices of people with a lived experience of psychosocial disability and their families in program development, in policy development, in legal uh, policy development, to support emerging DPOs uh, that are for people with psychosocial disability, 
Um, and also including in this capacity building of development uh, and community partners to harness the voices of lived experience, because this is not necessarily something that people have intuitively. Um, and of course, including in this is the fostering of South-to-South -South learning, which we saw in the uh, Timor-Leste example, but of course is what Bagavi is really championing. Because we as Westerners in Australia should not necessarily be leading this, which I think is an <coughs> assumption we don't question as much as we should. Uh, our second take home is that we need to integrate mental health and psychosocial disability programs into all types of development programs because that's where the impact is actually going to happen. So economics and livelihood, education, health, not just mental health, but more broader aspects of health, gender inclusion, and existing disability movements. Uh, and then finally, we want to call to invest in community-based, human rights-focused, culturally appropriate, something that's very important, mental health programming, um, and participatory, so locally-led, defined, and applied research. And this includes the way that psychosocial disability and mental Distress is conceptualized in different contexts because this allows us to understand where the kind of leverage points and the entry points might be for how we can embed a human rights-based approach, but also uh, harnessing the, the capabilities and the strengths of local cultures. So I'd like to have an, a round of applause for our panelists. You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea, the Pacific and Global Development Policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter to get all the latest updates, or you can connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening. <laughs>